This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week is Kent Tocolvi. Kent Tocolvi, pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. What? <laughs> 543, number 543, Kent Tocolvi. Yes, I remember Teak much better as a pirate, and we'll talk all about Kent Tocolvi in just a minute. But before that, we have follow-up on a couple of items. First, we have the Ephus pitch that we need to discuss. Uh, it's run through several episodes now, David, and it continues to be a phenomenon in the 2021 Major League Baseball season. Zach Grinke threw an EFIS pitch this week that was clocked at 51 miles per hour <laughs> against Detroit. And there's a video of it side-by-side with Zach Grinke throwing a 100-mile-per-hour fastball from 2010. It is an amazing change of of pace pitch and it is great to see that the Ephus pitch didn't leave the game with Pascual Perez but that other greats have have picked it up and Zach threw this one for a strike we also have a 47 mile an hour pitch thrown by Williams Astadio I don't know if you can call this an Ephus or a Bocephus or whatever but yeah 46 miles an hour it was right down the middle and thrown in for a strike as the utility player slash catcher a uh, chubby guy ends up closing out the inning. We talk about players of all shapes and sizes on the 1988 Tops podcast, and I think we should join the chorus of people celebrating Williams Astadio, who I think also legged out an infield hit this week. The man <laughs> can move <laughs> and pitch. And he got out of that inning without giving up a hit. Yeah, seven pitches, a perfect inning. It was really, really nice. So glad to see that happening. Our second piece of follow-up has to do with Ken Phelps. David, you had looked into players getting to 100 home runs in the fewest number of at-bats, and Ken had done that in 1,322 at-bats. And that, at the time, was the record for the major leagues. Ryan Howard broke that major league record when he hit his 100th home run in 1,141 at-bats. But it led me to think... There's been some pretty prolific power hitters recently and guys starting their career really fast like Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge didn't quite break Ken's AL record, but Joey Gallo definitely did. In 2019, Joey Gallo hit his 100th home run in his 1,188th at bat. So I think that that is now the AL record. Sorry, Ken Phelps. It was bound to happen with the the move toward young power hitters these days. Why well, like David when we find the correction before our fans and listeners do. It makes me feel better about our accountability. So thank you for correcting that. Now on to our card to Kent Tocolvi and number 543. And this was yet another request from a listener. We are on a great streak of listener requests. This request came from at GableCR on Twitter. Thank you, GableCR. He said, my father and I used to try to mimic Kent Tocolvi's delivery when playing catch. And he still shows highlight videos of Kent Tocolvi to his kids, which I think is, you know, really in this work and school from home, that's a great educational tool. You know, maybe we need to have a Kent Tocolvi curriculum Mm. in our school system. As you know, I I have another podcast about the uh, MOOCs, the Massive Open Online Courses. 
And I believe a Kent to Colby submarine pitching curriculum would do very, very well these days. Even with the return to in-person learning, I think this summer can really help your kids in summer school by teaching them the most natural way to throw a baseball, which is in this insane submarine style. It, it looks amazing. We're going to learn a lot about fashion. <laughs> We're going to learn a lot about human anatomy and what <laughs> a pitcher's body is supposed to do and what way it's supposed to move. And on the topic of education, Kent Tocolvi was also on Mr. Rogers. Yes. Which is fantastic at it, teaching kids the right, really the right message, setting the right, along with Lynn Swan. So, and we're going to learn about funk music. All great things. Any great Pittsburgh personality ends up on Mr. Rogers, inevitably. Uh, I associate Kent Tocolvi most strongly with. You know, my early childhood with my cousins, Keith and Jeff, who were older than me, really good at baseball, and they kind of got me into baseball. And my Uncle Steve and my Aunt Linda, RIP Aunt Linda, who I don't know, for some reason when looking at Kent Colby's face and remembering back, for some reason I associate Kent Colby's face with my Aunt Linda's voice. Is that weird? I guess kind of weird. So anyway, <laughs> this, this card I've been looking forward to for quite some time. So thank you very much, Gable CR. Now let's go to the front of the card and let's th this look, David. This is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. We have never seen a picture like this so far in the series. You have Kent Colby in mid-pitch. He's in motion. But if you, if you took the baseball glove off of his hand and you took the baseball out of the other hand and you were just to describe what is this guy doing? Pretending to be a bird? Yeah, he's got the both arms completely flexed and his hips in mid-twist, his backside sticking out, his face contorted horribly. Looks like he's in horrible pain. Yeah, it does not look natural one bit. It, it looks like he's being tortured. and it's He's beautiful. also wearing transitions lenses. Oh, yeah. So back-to-back uh, -back weeks with, with sunglasses, which is very exciting. He's got the beautiful powder blue Phillies uniform. This is it's a very good uniform look, but like we were saying before, I picture Kent Tocolvi as a Pittsburgh pirate, and there's something about this that just seems a little bit off to me. Yeah, me too, but he was with the Phillies for several years, so here here he is in his third year at the Phillies. Again, wearing the powder blue Phillies with the red stripe all along from from head to toe and the red stirrup socks too which we haven't seen as much of in in these cards this is also a 40 year old man he's 40 years old in this picture he looks like he's wait a minute 60 yeah he does oh my gosh yeah he looks very old going to the back of the card again 543 ken is listed as 64 190 right-handed thrower and batter and he did he did hit every now and then Signed by the Pirates as a free agent in 1969, born March 5th, 1947, Cincinnati, Ohio, and home in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh Penna. I don't know why they decided to add an extra A at the end of it. I think that used to be AP style. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, do you have another podcast dealing with the AP style book? As you know, David, I wrote for my college newspaper and thus have had a 20-year podcast about... <laughs> about this week in college newspaper journalism. Mm -hmm. That log three-year run of just talking about Oxford commas was <laughs> riveting stuff. Yes. So many stats on the back here. 
so much black ink, a lot of years where he was the league leader in games pitched. And again, no fun fact. So I guess we just have to fill in the blanks here. Yeah, no room for a fun fact. The fun fact is the picture on the front. (laughs) Fun fact (laughs) is this man played professional baseball. Yes. And he was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and named after a used car dealership. Yes. That's that's great. Nothing else to say about that. Kenton, (laughs) his given name is Kenton. His dad had been a a semi-pro pitcher and drove a truck for Kroger's grocery store, and his mother worked for a hospital. He played baseball as a freshman in high school, but was cut as a sophomore, and then later played his junior and senior years. Something that was maybe a theme of Kent's career and something we've already talked about is that Ken doesn't particularly look athletic, and as a young player, a lot of times the pitcher is also the best player on the team and the best hitter on the team. Ken always batted ninth and only pitched. So he didn't really play in the outfield. He didn't run well. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like he's just all arms and legs. After high school, he went to Marietta College, which is further east in Ohio along the West Virginia border. Other alums of Marietta College include Ban Johnson, who was the founder and first president of the American League, and pitcher Terry Mulholland, who was in the 1987 and 89 top sets, but somehow not the 1988 top set, also a a Philadelphia Philly. While at Marietta College, Kent was coached by Don Shaley, who coached for 40 seasons in (laughs) Division Three baseball. He won three national titles and in the year 2000 was the Division Three coach of the century. Don passed away in 2004 and was inducted into the College Baseball Hall of Fame in 2013. Under Don Shaley, Kent switched his motion up, switched to a more of a sidearm style. And in his senior season, he was All-Ohio Athletic Conference second team with a .94 ERA, and he is now in the Marietta College Sports Hall of Fame, where he is listed as Kenton Charles Carney to Colvie. Matt, you you referenced Teak earlier as a popular nickname for Kent to Colvie. I had not not heard the name the nickname Carney. I mean Carney <laughs> no. Lansford, Carney Wilson. I don't know if they were saying he looked like a carny i don't know what the i mean i this sounds like a like a play on like a circus freak i mean is that what they're thinking is that he's so tall maybe i couldn't find any other listing of kent tacolvi as carny other than the marietta college sports hall of fame and in 1994 the press box at don shaley stadium was renamed the kent tacolvi media building i gotta say of all the nicknames you could give somebody and that would then be put into your name on the sports hall of fame carney is a pretty bad one (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know about that one it's a questionable decision by the marietta college sports i also am curious david how when someone has a 0.94 era how you only make the second team like who was ahead of him in the baseball team I don't know. Not a lot of detailed stats on the All-Ohio Athletic Conference Mm. in 1968. We'll expect baseball reference to get on that. So how high was was Kent Tocolvi drafted then after this amazing college performance? Uh, He wasn't. He was invited (laughs) to a tryout, and I've seen it listed as he was offhandedly invited to a tryout. I don't know if somebody like saw him at the grocery store and was like, yeah, 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 just, just come along. At Forbes Field in July of 1969. And then he said that 
nobody ever asked him to get on the mound and pitch. So he just kind of like hung out in the stands. Apparently, his performance in the 60-yard dash earlier in the day made everyone at the tryout laugh, and they did not believe that he was major league material. He said, if I could run, I'd be stealing bases. I'm a pitcher. So they finally, after everybody left, they let him pitch, and they signed him on the spot. And two days later, they send him to A-ball, and he pitches in nine games, starting seven of them, and goes 6-2 and two with a 1.70 ERA. The Kent to Colby miracle begins. So that was 1969. He didn't make it to the major leagues until 1974. Bounces around the minors a little bit. The next year, he was moved into relief, so he's no longer a starting pitcher at Salem. Spent 70 and 71 there, and was an effective reliever. In 1972, he's pitching at Sherbrooke. Uh, Sherbrooke may be best known on this podcast as the hockey home of Kirk McCaskill. Yes. In rural Quebec. Kent at Sherbrooke moved to a full submarine pitching motion. And this is where we get the iconic Kent to Colby look. He said it was modeled after Ted Abernathy, who had pitched for the Reds when Kent was growing up. We really need to dig into the submarine motion where it came from, because this is the biggest thing I remember about Kent to Colby and what we would try to mimic when we're throwing around in the yard as kids. His follow through was below the waist. So we've talked about guys with a three quarter release point or a sidearm motion before, but this is this submarine is fully torquing your body and coming up as you're releasing. And Kent said that physiologically, your arm is built to hang at your side. So this is Kent Sokolvi, the physiologist. Right. He said, throwing overhead, the muscles are all out of position and they lift up. But for him, throwing with the downward motion was more like swinging a golf club. And it was just more of the natural follow through for him with the way that his arms are built. And he has these very long rubber band arms. He also said that for for a pitcher who didn't have a lot of power, it changes up the perspective. So it's not like he was throwing 100 miles an hour. So it was easier for him to switch to this, to this submarine motion and work more on getting different spin and different release points and getting different motion on the ball versus being able to get more power behind it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, we see obviously with... Uh, softball when men or women play fast pitch softball you could pitch every day like that there isn't as much damage to the shoulder there's not as much damage to the elbow and it does seem like it is uh, more natural And that overhand you know maybe you can get more speed from time to time I think maybe Dr. Teak has something going on here he he also said that his pitches he said if he's throwing a 89 mile an hour slider that the faster he threw the ball, the less it would break. And so he actually aimed to throw sometimes slower. And if you if you watch the videos, it doesn't look like an intimidating fast pitch, but he said that 8 to 10 feet away from the plate, the ball will break or drop so it could move a foot. And because he's throwing it with this curve, it just it changes the, the flight of the ball because you're releasing it at such a low point. Matt, like you said, this submarine motion is often used by guys coming back from injury, less stress on the shoulder and elbow with that release point. Yeah. And it has the added benefit of just looking ridiculous in slow motion. 
if you look at some of these pictures that were taken of Teak in the 70s with the pirates, it looks like his rib cage has distended from his body because of this motion. And it almost looks like it had to be painful. But for him, he said, like, no, this is just the way my body works. When he moves to the full submarine at Sherbrooke, he ends up getting called up to AAA in 1972. It doesn't go great, so he ends up back at Sherbrooke for the 73 season, where he pitched in 57 games, went 12-4 and with 18 saves and a 1.53 ERA, and he tied for the league lead in wins as a reliever, which is pretty yeah. impressive, <laughs> but, and also shows he was just a, just a workhorse already throwing in nearly 60 games a season. Going into 1974, he starts at AAA and ends up making a call-up to the majors in May. He was 27 years old when he got his first call-up. It was an inauspicious start, as we see on the back of the card. He pitched in eight games and had a 6.0 ERA and got sent back down to AAA, where in the 35 games he played at AAA, he had a 2.25 ERA. 1975, he's splitting time between Charleston and Pittsburgh, and from then on, he's in the majors until 1989. That 1975 season was the start of a run for Teak of having an ERA under four every season until 1989. So even a bad year for him, if you look at his stat line, is 3.3 ERA. A very dominant run for the next 15 years as a setup man, as a closer, that first season, the Pirates did win the division, and Teak made his first playoff appearance, except they, the Pirates got swept by the Reds in 1975. In 1976, he is, has really established himself in the Pirates' bullpen. Unfortunately, the team went 4-21 and in his appearances in the first three months of the season. Both the team got better and he got better opportunities in the second half of the season. He started picking up some saves, ended up with nine saves, and overall pitched in 64 games and had a 2.45 ERA. The turnaround in 1976 must have had to do with the release of this song and the choice to play this song as Teak's walk-on music. And it's this song by the Spinners called The Rubber Band Man. The Sinners have been performing since the 1950s. They had some big hits in the 60s and 70s. I'll Be Around, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love, It's a Shame. But this one is one of their bigger hits, the, the Rubber Band Man, and includes the line, Prepare yourself for the Rubber Band Man. You're bound to lose control when the Rubber Band Man starts to jam. <laughs> and one of my... Favorite podcast, Jordan Jesse Go had an analysis of this song some <laughs> many years ago. So without retreading all of the solid ground that noted San Francisco Giants fan, Jesse Thorne, already went through with this song, I just should say that this is a ridiculous song. The original title of it was The Fat Man. I think The Rubber Band Man is a better title and better suited for Kent Tocolvi. I think it describes a, a musical group with a short fat man who's playing a rubber band and he 
stretches the band between his toes, and then the rubber band got down and it finally reached his nose. I don't know what any of this means. It's, it's nonsense. And the song was seven plus minutes on the album. Yeah, we're not going to play all seven minutes uh, here for you. You just got just got a little taste of that. But David, I think that the funk, just the joy, and the ridiculousness, I think, matches the fact that at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, you hear this song and you know something fun is about to happen. You know, Teak is coming on to win the game. Between this song, his style... And his look, uh, he definitely was a fan favorite. He was in my family for sure. And so going into 1977, he was a setup man, not the closer, but he went 10 and 1, 3.06 ERA and 72 appearances, which is so many. I know there's more to come, but still, it's just, that's a lot of games. So that was in the top 10 in the National League, but he will go on to lead the league in games pitched many times throughout his career. And that season, the Pirates had 99 wins and somehow didn't win their division. They finished five games behind the Phillies, which was a theme at the time. Yeah, the Phillies' dominant force in the NL East at that time. Goose Gossage leaves after 1977, and in 1978, Teak becomes a new closer. He's, he has his best year yet at age 31. He pitched in 91 games, so oh my God. this previous season he had been Goose Gossage's setup man. This is the first of four times that he would lead the National League in games pitched. And being the closer, he also got 31 saves to match his age and a 2.33 ERA. He was fifth in Cy Young voting and even got some MVP votes that season. He did get some MVP votes, but the Pirates could not overtake the Phillies. They were... 11 and a half games out in August, but they closed strong and almost caught the Phillies, but couldn't make it. And that probably sets us up for a big 1979. And the Stargell stars arrived around 1978. Willie Stargell giving out stars to put on guys' hats for great performances. The, you know, the Pirates had this pillbox cap with the yellow lines, and they would put the stars in between the lines. And Teak got a ton of stars in 78 and 79. And that we are family pirates team. If this is a family, clearly you have pops, Willie Stargell. <laughs> Burt Blylevin is on that team. He's probably like the rascally brother who's setting people on fire, <laughs> farting and leaving the room. <laughs> is Teak yeah, a weird I, uncle? Yeah, I think so. I think he's the weird uncle. No one really understands all that well. Good heart, but looks a little off. Lives in the basement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's not going to hurt anybody. He's harmless, but it, everyone still kind of wonders about him a little bit. But again, leading the league in appearances, 94 games pitched. That's insane. He pitched 90-plus games three times in his career. He holds three of the top seven spots for most games pitched. And this set a record for the Pirates at the time of most games pitched in a season. He also had 31 saves again, second season in a row, got more Cy Young votes, fifth in the Cy Young again, and eighth in the MVP voting. He actually, he led the league in win probability added, so he basically came through big in high-intensity lockdown situations, shutting down opposition. And he also filled in in left field. <laughs> what? I didn't know that this was a thing you could do, but to Colby's pitching, September 1st, he gets two outs and gives up a single. 
The next batter is a lefty. So to get the, the matchup that he wanted, Chuck Tanner brings in Grant Jackson, who we discussed and at one point was traded for Ken Phelps. Grant Jackson comes in, and rather than do a, a switch with Kent to Colby, they switch Grant Jackson in for the left fielder, move to Colby to left field, just in case Jackson doesn't get the next batter out, they can move to Colby back to the pitching mound. Hmm. I did not realize this is a thing you could do, so I looked it up in the rules. According to the rules, a pitcher may change to another position only once during the same inning. And then it says, for example, the pitcher will not be allowed to assume a position other than pitcher more than once in the inning. So you can do this once. You can move a guy to left field and then move him back to the pitcher's mound. But you then have to take him out. What ended up happening, Grant Jackson forces a fly out that Teak actually catches to end the game. Get out of here. (laughs) That's amazing. Did he get the save, though? He did not. He got a hold. But the person who got the last out got got the save. Yes. And maybe this we'll come back to this, that for Kent's compiled stats at the end, there's a lot of these situations where it's like, man, maybe if he had just gotten 15 more of those or 20 more of those or been the closer in some of those earlier seasons, his career stats would look a little bit more impressive. And playing in left field is impressive to me. So the Pirates end up impressive that season too. Obviously, they finish 98-64. And after finishing second to the Phillies three years in a row, they finally win the division. They finally win the NL East. And Tocolvi gets a save in the clinching victory in the last game of the season, which brings them into the playoffs. They play Cincinnati, the same team that they played in 1975. And this time they swept the Reds. Antique pitches in two of those wins. That sets up a World Series against the Orioles. And this 1979 World Series... Because of We Are Family, because of this team, not just because I'm a Pirates fan, but I think for so many reasons, this is one that we really want to encourage listeners to go back and find, especially Game 7 we're going to talk a lot about right here. Just go back and watch the whole game on YouTube. It only takes a couple hours. It's the best. It's the best use of a couple of hours on YouTube. I mean, I really, it's amazing. We're going back to Howard Cosell and Keith Jackson calling baseball games. We're talking baseball in 1979 when everybody cared. And just just wait and see what happens. The series starts in Baltimore. The Pirates win game one. Teak gets a save in Baltimore. That's great. Then they lost the next three games, including a blown save by Kent Tocolvi in game four. Things look bleak going into Game 5, down 3-1. to one. Uh, Game 5 was a 7-1. to one. Pirates win. Turns their fortune around. Turns their fortunes around. Burt Blylevin got the win in this game. Goes into Game 6. John Candelaria, the Candyman, and Teak <laughs> team up for a shutout in Game 6. Teak gets his second save. I think he had a three-inning save there. And we go to Game 7 in Baltimore. As Matt said, must watch Game 7. <laughs> Bottom of the eighth, Pirates are up 2-1 to one after Willie Stargell had hit a home run to put them ahead. With one out, you have Grant Jackson on the mound. He walks two guys. Kent comes in to face Terry Crowley, and Terry Crowley had doubled off of Kent in Game 4. And if you click on, we'll have the link that's, I think, pinpointed to when Kent comes into the game. And you can see Willie Stargell on the mound. I think Willie Stargell's 39 at this point, coming off an MVP season. Supposedly, what he said to 
to Colby was, show the people why you're the best in the National League, and if you don't think that you could do it, you go play first base and I'll pitch. <laughs> and you can see Stargell standing there at the mound after everybody leaves, and he's still talking to, to Teak. I don't know if he was talking him down or calming him down. Tocolvi gets Crowley to bounce out. The next batter was intentionally walked to load the bases. Eddie Murray comes up. He's in the middle of an 0 for 20 streak. He flies out to Dave Parker, who almost falls down in the outfield, ends the inning, ends the threat. The Pirates get a couple of runs in the ninth, and uh, it takes us to the bottom of the ninth with Kent Tocolvi on the mound. Yeah, and this, David, is where Everything came full circle for me with the 1988 Tops podcast because as we get to the bottom of the ninth and Howard Cosell and Keith Jackson are talking, I have another section in here we want people to watch, which is in the crowd. If you'll remember from the Juan Nieves episode where we talk about the song Orioles Magic, there is a fan named Wild Bill Hagee that is a famous Oriole fan who in section 34 would get the crowd very riled up with his O-R-I-O-L-E-S chant. And you can see him waving his cowboy hat around and getting the fans riled up. So this came back. We actually saw him in action, and all of America saw him back then. But going into that bottom of the ninth, Tocolby strikes out the first two batters and gets a fly out, one, two, three, to get his third save and win the World Series. So after the game ends, listeners, you do not want to turn it off. You want to keep watching because you've got all the champagne. You've got all the fun, you know, fun stuff going on in the locker room. The celebration and ceremony is not on the field. It's in the locker room itself. They're interviewing everyone. But then everyone shows up. So the owners all show up. All of the media shows up. And then jimmy carter president of the united states shows up he clearly like wants to talk about baseball with them and has some stats that he's got he's like oh willie stargell set a record for most extra base hits in a world series and everybody's kind of like ignoring the fact that the president of the united states is standing there on this little podium willie stargell like gives this impassioned speech about the greatness of this family and this the people of Pittsburgh and all of this. Meanwhile, the president of the United States is just there, also on this tiny podium. It's fantastic. You see Kent Tocolvi drinking from not even a bottle of champagne, just like a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's just talking about how much they love Willie Stargell. And it, I was not alive at this point, have no allegiances to the city of Pittsburgh or the Pirates, but I loved it. It was great. Even the... Yeah, just fantastic. Watching Willie Stargell at the plate against anybody, it just the bat looks so small in his hands. He's such a big man. Every swing, he looks like he wants to crush the ball. <laughs> he wants to hit and a huge home run. And he, every single pitch that came to him, he was just trying to crush it. And you get a great interview with Kent Tocolvi and Grant Jackson. And it's just it's great to see Don Drysdale interviewing two relief pitchers just side by side a lot of good mustaches in this clubhouse there you know there's the iconic image of uh, of Kent Tocolvi jumping after getting that final out his hat is so full of Stargell stars there's even stars that are safety pinned to the top of his hat <laughs> just man 1979 lots of things are going to pale in comparison to that David we're going to speed up a little bit because it's just 
we could stay on this series for forever, but from there, there's just oh ho hum, just another you know another ten years of great pitching ahead for for Teak after this. 1980, he finally makes his first All Star game because his coach was the National League manager and got <laughs> got a pick. This was a disappointing season by kept to Colby standards, eight and twelve with twenty one saves and a three point three nine ERA. He said that his sinker wasn't sinking. His ERA was better than average, but still high for Teak. And his his whip was close to one point five. Normally it was down in the one point two range, so he's giving up more hits. Chuck Tanner gives him a spot on the All Star team. Teak didn't end up pitching. 1981 and 1982, obviously 1981 shortened by the strike. 1982, Tacolvi appears in 85 games, so leading the league. 1983, this is the final year of his contract. He pitches in 76 games with a 1.64 ERA, which is a great, great idea in your contract year. Especially when you're 36 to have one of your best seasons going into free agency. He didn't end up signing an extension right away, became a free agent. He ends up re-signing a little bit later for $900,000 per season, which is pretty good for a 35-plus-year-old Kent DeColvey. And he was on Mr. Rogers. Which is the real highlight. That's worth well more than $900,000 to be part of that kind of history. And we'll have a link to that episode in the show notes. I think that he is... There's a video that's shown by a robot, these very realistic robots uh, of Kent Tocolvi explaining how baseball works. It also has Lynn Swan explaining how football works and tennis and some other things. Pretty good episode. 1984, another consistent Tocolvi season, but he's starting to get a little miffed at Chuck Tanner. He didn't like the way that he was being used in the bullpen, and he didn't get a lot of save opportunities not nearly as many as he would like. I'm not sure if that was a statistical thing that he wanted to get or just that he wanted to be the guy getting the last out. And that season, he only had 13 saves, even though he pitched in 72 games. And so he started complaining a little bit publicly about the way that he was being used. And in 1985, after appearing in only three games, after 11 seasons and a World Series championship, he was traded across the state. Yeah, traded to the Phillies for reliever Al Holland and a minor leaguer. And he ends the season as the Phillies closer. So the Phillies know what to do with him. And he gets 14 saves and has an ERA of 2.99. So although he's the closer in 1985, in 1986 and 1987, the Phillies have him as a setup man. They traded away Ozzie Virgil to get Steve Bedrosian. And Steve Bedrosian in 1987 ends up saving 40 games and winning the Cy Young Award. Teak, again, at 40 years old, leads the league with 90 appearances, the oldest pitcher to lead the league in appearances. This set a single-season record for most games by a Phillies pitcher. He also got a special honor, David, and it leads us to something that really we forgot or we that we just did not know when we did a formal rundown of all of the different 1988 Topps cards. We neglected... Something that was staring us right in the face only if we had flipped over the box of cards. The bottom of the wax pack boxes had cards on them. A panel of four cards, you would have to cut them apart, but one of them had Kent Tocolvi on it. And each card describes an important event or accomplishment from the 1987 season. I think one of them pointed out Ricky Henderson being the youngest player to steal 700 bases, those kind of 
odd events, fun facts. You know, maybe they could have put those on the fun fact of the back of cards. Kent's fun fact on the back of this wax box was that he held the record for most games pitched in a single league. And at the time, he was at 943 National League games. Wow. And I think that that record has since been broken, but but clearly he was just racking up numbers here. Hard to believe that you could have a mint condition of any of these cards since they are hand cut <laughs> by the collector. When I was searching around for 1988 Topps Kent Tocolvi cards, somebody was selling one of these. It looked <laughs> like it was relatively well cut, but still you would, I mean, unless you have a professional operation, I imagine me as a kid with some craft scissors messing it up pretty bad you have to ask mom for an exacto knife and do it under very strict supervision so 1988 was to colby's final season with the phillies and he was okay 3.6 era in 70 games but the phillies were were pretty bad and they didn't offer him a new contract for the season which opens him up to his final season a a one-year deal with the reds in 1989 he was a non-roster spot going into spring training, but he earned a spot as John Franco's setup man. And he ended up retiring in mid-July. He had pitched in 37 games at that point and had a 5.02 ERA. It wasn't really working out for him. This is the first ERA over 4.0 since 1974. And he retired with 1,050 appearances in his career, which at the time was second all-time most in the National League. And now it looks like he's ninth all-time in Major League Baseball. Very impressive. 94-90 and 90 is his overall record. 2.85 career ERA, 184 saves, and only gave up 63 home runs. So pretty impressive for, for that long of a career. That 63 home runs among players with over 900 appearances is the fewest home runs. A lot of those guys are also closers, It's eight fewer than Mariano Rivera gave up in his career, and just a a really impressive number. So that closes the book on his major league career. How about in retirement? From 1991 to 97, he was part of the Phillies broadcast team. He was then a GM and pitching coach for a Frontier League team, and then became a scout in the Pirates organization. And in 2008, became a TV analyst for the Pirates and took a brief hiatus in 2014. Yeah, to have a heart transplant. (laughs) Just a short break for a heart transplant. He had had a heart attack in his 50s and spent eight months on the transplant list. The surgery occurred in September of 2014. By October, he was well enough to throw out the first pitch in the 2014 wildcard game. He threw it overhand. Uh, That's a bad sign. Yeah, the Pirates lost, unfortunately. Yeah, that's why. That's why. But it was, it's great to watch. There's a video here of him throwing out the pitch, and as he's being announced, just the Pirates fans going crazy, uh, cheering for Teak. I don't know if everybody in the stadium knew what he had come back from, but a great moment for Teak, waving his, hap, his cap to the crowd. I have no doubt that everyone in the stadium knew about it. Teak continues as an analyst until 2017, and after that time, he's he's been retired, retired. Although we do have video of him at the 40th anniversary of the 1979 team. So he still shows up at appearances, but it looks like he likes to take his vacations. He said that in 2018, it was the first extended summer vacation he had had in a very long time. He said maybe one time he took a more than three days off 
during his career during an all-star break, but for the most part, he was busy during the summer. He said he missed the broadcast world, except for rain delays and extra innings. He said he didn't miss Mm. the late nights of those events. Yeah, I can believe that. So, David, what are your final thoughts on Teak after taking a a submarine dive into the life of Kent Tocolvi? What a look and what a player. I remember Kent Tocolvi as this image and his image as a filly from the cards. I was not cognizant enough as a very young person to know of him as a pirate. Only in adulthood have I gone back and watched videos of of Teak in those in his heyday in Pittsburgh. But it's so iconic the look of him in the yellow with the pillbox cap and just shutting down teams, winning that World Series, that leap at the end of the nineteen seventy nine World Series is an just an iconic image of Pittsburgh Pirates history and baseball history. You know that on this podcast I, in the past I have argued for some folks that I think should be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And part of it is I like there to be a place for the best of each in their field. Kenta Colvey was not an elite closer for a long enough time to get to 300 saves. He also didn't pitch at a time with the one-inning closer. And so he was pitching multiple innings of games. He was a setup man for Hall of Famer Goose Gossage. He was a setup man for Steve Bedrosian in a Cy Young year. But that doesn't really get reflected in the stat line. And as far as wins above replacement go, for players with fewer than 10 starts, he's fifth. Hmm. He had zero starts in his career. The guys ahead of him are Mariano Rivera, Lee Smith, Trevor Hoffman, and Billy Wagner, all guys with way more saves than Kent had. And so he's in there in the seventh and eighth inning, not necessarily getting the stat line that shows up on the back of a baseball card. He ended with... 184 saves in his career. Not necessarily Hall of Fame numbers, but, you know, I guess I'll leave it at Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda called Teak that tall, skinny nightmare. And Kent Tocolvi was a shutdown setup man, and I wish that there was a place for the guy who is the best in his field, because I think that Kent Tocolvi was the the best setup man in baseball for a long time and, and had some impressive stats, if maybe not stats that would reflect a Hall of Fame career. Well, I think that's well said. I mean, he did get some Hall of Fame votes after retirement, and we checked with the Hall of Stats at hallofstats.com, and he is not listed in the Hall of Stats. He didn't make 100 in the index. I think he was in the 40s or 50s. But to me, David, I'm I'm all on board with you for Kent Colby for the Hall of Fame. You know, Chuck Tanner... When asked about Teak, he would say, I keep reminding Tocolvi that he's ugly. I mean ugly. But I swear, when he comes ambling out there in the ninth inning, he looks just like Paul Newman to me. There's something about this guy that did the very hard work and that was extremely valuable to his team that maybe didn't have Don Sutton looks, but he had but he had fantastic productivity and dominance, really, in his role. So I'm, I'm all on board with you for that. And yes, it's true that, as Keith Jackson said in the 1979 World Series, that of all the players on the field here, if Kent Tocolvi is the last one that if you saw him on the street, you'd think, hey, that's a major league pitcher. And even if Kent doesn't make it into the Hall of Fame, his 1979 Pirates hat did make it into the Hall of Fame. And we'll have a link to that 
object that you could look at with all of its many, many Stargell stars. So thank you, David. Want to thank again Gable CR on Twitter for the request and keep those requests coming. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. If you've ever been mistaken for a creepy uncle, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.